This morning we are going to be continuing our series in the Gospel of Matthew, looking at the, the birth narrative uh, right off the bat here. Um, and uh, But this morning I'd like to start with something just a little bit uh, fun. Uh, we are going to look at something that um, I, I've been... I did as a, as a youth pastor um, every year around Christmas time, I would uh, give my kids a Christmas quiz. Um, and uh, it's, a, it's a quiz that's meant to really point out the fact that, um, that often the things that we think of when we think about the Christmas story, a lot of the details are not actually scriptural, are not actually from the Bible. And just kind of points out the way that our cultural understandings have bled into um, what we think is true about the Christmas story. So this is just for fun, obviously, and not, uh, you're not getting a grade on this, um, but, uh, but play along with me, if you will, uh, the, you can, uh, get some paper and score yourself if you want to. So, um, so, all right, here we go, right off the bat. Now I've, I've pared this down. Normally the quiz is, uh, 21 questions, but I've pared it down to, uh, 10 questions. So, uh, this will just be a kind of a fun thing to get into our topic today. Uh, so number one, why didn't Joseph and Mary stay at the inn? A, they didn't have the money. B, there was no inn. C, there was no room. Or D, who knows? Uh, and the answer is, there was no room. There was no room in the inn. Uh, question number two, how did Joseph and Mary get to Bethlehem? A, a colt. B, Mary rode a donkey and Joseph walked. C, a wagon, or D, who knows? So get your answers in. All right, the answer is, the answer is D, who knows? We, we have that image of, of Mary riding a donkey and Joseph walking along the side. A lot of people suppose that might be the case uh, because she was pregnant, so uh, she might have needed to ride, ride on an animal, but we don't really know how they got there. Um, it's, not in, it's not in Scripture. Number three, a manger is A, a stable, B, a feeding trough, C, a wooden table, D, a barn. And the answer is B, feeding trough, feeding trough. All right, question number four. Which animals were housed in the stable? A, cows, donkeys, and sheep. B, lions, tigers, and bears. C, goats, sheep, and cows. Or D, who knows? And the answer again is D, who knows? All of your nativity scenes are just guessing at what might have been housed there. It's possible that the stable wasn't even being used at the time uh, that, that Mary and Joseph stayed there. We don't know whether that was the case or not. Five, from what area were the wise men that visited Jesus? A, the west, B, the east, C, the orient, or D, who knows? The answer is B, the east. Now, I always have a couple of my uh, more advanced students uh, that, that were in my youth group uh, always challenged this one slightly, that, that C, the orient, might be correct. And we'll find out a little bit more about that uh, later on in uh, our, our uh, study today. Question number six, what sign were the shepherds told to look for by the angel? A, a lion and a sheep together in peace. B, a tree with a star on top. C, a star over Bethlehem. Or D, none of the above. And the answer is 
D, none of the above. Those not, they were told to look for a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths, lying in a manger. Um, the, the star comes in much later on in the story that we're actually going to look at today with the wise men. Number seven, with what words did the heavenly host of angels praise God? A, joy to the world, the Lord has come. B, glory, glory, hallelujah. C, king of kings and Lord of lords. Or D, glory to God in the highest. And the answer is D, glory to God in the highest. But you have to think about it. What, what, did it, what does it say in that part of scripture? Because those are all different things that we sing or uh, that we hear in other parts of scripture. Number eight, how many wise men came to see Jesus? A, one, B, two, C, three, or D, who knows? The answer is D, who knows? We have the, the image of the three wise men. Every nativity set that you get has three wise men, but we don't really know how many wise men came to see Jesus. Um, one tradition holds that it was 12, um, but I think most of our nativity sets choose three because uh, three gifts. So they figure just three gifts, three guys. Uh, but it could be that that was just was the totality of the gifts that they were bringing. Could be that there was four and one just forgot to get a gift. Um, all right, question number nine. The wise men met Jesus in a manger, B, a castle, C, a stable, D, a house. We'll find today that he meet Jesus in a house. Uh, this is a, a, a little bit different. And, and, and this is one of the reasons that we always, uh, I always point out when you see a nativity scene. And, and I think they're, they're lovely, but they often have the shepherds and the wise men there together at the same time. Uh, that was not the case. We'll find today as we look into this passage that, that, was not, uh, that that's not realistic. All right, last question. Last question. Who told Joseph and Mary... To go to Bethlehem, A. An angel, B. Caesar Augustus, C. Herod, or D. No one told them to go. It was B. Caesar Augustus ordered a census to be taken throughout the Roman Empire. All right, so well, that's that's just for, for fun, and and we'll see some of those answers uh, today. But um, it is important in general that we don't just assume what we know to be in the Bible, but that we actually check to ensure that it is. Because uh, that doesn't just happen with the Christmas story, unfortunately. There are a lot of things uh, that we uh, assume are biblical that are actually just our own tradition. All right. Um, today, our passage is going to be Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. We're calling this the bright morning star. Um, and we'll look first at the Magi's journey in verses uh, 1 through 6. All right. Magi's journey. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. 
And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. All right, so the first thing we see in this passage is that Jesus is born in Bethlehem. And the question we have to ask is, why is this significant? Well, Bethlehem was a small town about six miles south of Jerusalem. Um, it sits in a fertile countryside. Um, and it's actually why, where it gets its name from. The name Bethlehem means house of bread. And Bethlehem had a significant history. Um, it, 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 despite being a small town, a lot of significant things had happened there. It was uh, first off where Jacob buried Rachel. We find that story in uh, Genesis 35. Um, so it's where Jacob buried his beloved wife, Rachel. Um, and from the book of Ruth, we find that this is where Ruth lived uh, when she married Boaz. Uh, so another significant moment. Uh, it was the hometown of King David. Um, and it was uh, later fortified by King Rehoboam. So uh, it was a significant place, even in spite of its small size, in spite of its relative insignificance in terms of being any kind of a, a, a major commerce center or anything like that. It would have been generally a small town. Uh, but it was also the place that Micah prophesied uh, would be the birthplace of the Messiah in Micah chapter 5, verse 2. And Matthew quotes this prophecy in verse 6 when he says, uh, You, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of, Ju of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Um, Micah makes that prophecy. Matthew now quotes it. Um, and, and we have to remember, Micah's goal in writing his gospel is to convert um, the Jews, to, to convince them that Jesus is the Messiah that has been prophesied of. So he's going to bring up prophecy quite a bit and point out how Jesus fulfilled prophecy. Um, another thing we, we know about Bethlehem is that it, it's kind of built, all the homes in Bethlehem are kind of built into uh, the side of a slope of a limestone ridge. Um, and it was very common for the homes to be built on the ridge or on the slope and then underneath them to be carved out a little cave kind of area that would be used as a stable. Um, and so it's very likely that one of these caves is where Mary gave birth, that, that she went to. And it's also the case that uh, when we think about it, the, the translation is always that it was an inn. Um, they didn't have inns in the way we think of them. It wasn't like the Holiday Inn. Uh, it wasn't like a, a motel. Um, that wasn't really a, a, a reality of, of, Jesus, of the world that Jesus was born into. Um, that wasn't a common thing, and it's certainly not in a town like Bethlehem. Um, so what this was more likely is a guest room of some kind, that there was no room in the guest room, that they would have gone back to Joseph's family home, or at least the, the area that his family lived in, and all of the guest rooms had kind of been taken up. Um, so, so there was nowhere for them in the, in the main house, um, and so they stayed in the stable. It's also not um, it wasn't totally dismissive of, of his family to send them there. This would be a common, commonplace uh, practice for them to stay somewhere like this. Uh, although it is certainly humble, right? We, we always think of it as, oh, they were cast out. There's no room for them. Um, but, but in reality, it just it kind of points to the, the humble origins of Jesus' birth. This was not a, a rich family. This was not a, a royal family in that way in spite of Joseph's royal lineage, 
linking back to King David. So it's likely that they were actually born in one of these caves, that that's what the stable would have been uh, made out of, was a, was a cave, in fact. Um, and, and that's where Jesus uh, is born, in Bethlehem. Now, um, we also see in these passage, uh, wise men coming from the east. And the question is, who were these men? Who were these wise men? What do we mean by wise men? Well, there's no consensus for exactly who these men were. Um, the word magi, which is the word that we're translating, uh, it, it, that's often translated as wise men. Some translations will actually use the term magi. Um, it's very difficult to translate who, what is a magi. Um, there's a, a, a philosopher, a historian, uh, ancient, ancient historian named Herodotus, who claimed that they were originally a Median tribe, um, which was part of the Persian Empire, and that they became a tribe of priests among the Persians, uh, much in the way that the Levites were to the Israelites. So it's possible these Magi were a tribe of, of priests um, living among the Persians, but they were men of, of holiness, men of wisdom, men who sought the truth. Um, and they had a variety of interests. Um, they they uh, were into they were into philosophy, into medicine, natural science, astronomy, uh, soothsaying, dream interpretation. Um, that all these different things. One of the things that that they're often um, commented on is that they would have been stargazers. They would have been into uh, astronomy. They would have watched the stars and then tried to interpret the signs of the stars. Um, this is also not the only place in Scripture where magi show up. Um, there's actually two places in Acts where specific magi are mentioned. So in Acts chapter 8, um, there's a man named Simon. There was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. So right there where it says magic, that's where we get the word magi from. That's really where the word magic comes from, is from the, the word magi. Um, but they're saying that Simon was practicing as a magi. Um, in Acts 13, 8, um, oh, and I should note with Simon, we'll go back to Simon real quick. Simon ends up being converted. So he ends up believing Philip uh, and, and seeing the signs that Philip performs and believing the gospel that's, that Philip preaches. And so he's converted. There's another that shows up, Elymas the magician, um, it says, but Elymas the magician, for that is the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. So Elymas is struck blind uh, by Paul, which results in the conversion of the proconsul. So this powerful uh, man is converted by the fact that, that Elymas the magi, his magician there, is, is the same word that is translated for us as wise men, but Elymas the magi, he... Uh, opposes Paul and, and those who are preaching the gospel in the city, and, and he tries to turn the, the, this government official away from them. Um, and, and in the end, he ends up being converted because Paul um, kind of uh, curses and, and strikes blind um, the, the uh, Elymas. So uh, these two in the book of Acts, they may not have been from the same tribe of Magi as, as the Magi who visited Jesus, but they uh, practice the same arts. Now, we might also look into the fact that 
what is this about the Orient, right? We even um, sang this uh, sang this verse today, or this song today of, of We Three Kings, um, which says, We Three Kings from Orient are, which right there, like, wait, are they, why, are they kings from the Orient, or are they wise men from the East? What is going on here? Um, a lot of this has to do with translation uh, issues, um, but in the in the in the days of Jesus, and in, in, at this time, um, and really throughout the Old Testament as well, maps were oriented toward the east. So in the same way that our maps are oriented north, their maps were oriented east. It's how people thought about space and and all those kind of things. And so the reason that the eastern direction is known as the Orient because that's the orientation. Um, it's the way that maps were oriented at the time. Um, so that's where we get the term, the Orient, uh, because they're, they're from the direction that everything is oriented. Um, so the Orient is not a place where they come from. Right? We, we have developed in our culture this term of the Orient. It's really fallen out of fashion, but for a time, that was a term of the, the Orient, um, but in reality, that was never, in, in terms of in scripture, that was never a place that was a direction. There were wise men coming from the direction of the orientation of the map from the east. They were coming from the east. Um, how they get called kings at some point, again, has to do with the trouble of translating that word magi. But wise men is much closer translation, or frankly, even magician is a closer translation um, because of all the different things that they practiced. They would have certainly been um, associated with royalty because royalty would be the ones who would um, utilize their services. Um, they would often be, you know, kind of funded and supported by uh, the royalty, but, but they would not have been kings themselves. They could have been of royal descent, but they wouldn't be kings themselves. And so um, these are these wise men coming from the east, uh, and they say, we saw his star. And there's yet another question pops up for us. Of what was this star? What is going on with the star? Have you noticed how many questions we have uh, just right off the bat in this passage? Uh, why Bethlehem? Who are these men? What is this star? There's a lot of mystery going on here. And again, with the what is this star, there is not consensus among Bible scholars. So, um, you've probably read an article that says, oh, it was this or it was that, um, and, and that's fine. You want to pick one, that's great. But, uh, but just know there's a lot of, of division and question among the uh, biblical scholarship community um, about what this star exactly was. Uh, there are some possibilities. Um, Halley's Comet was believed to have been visible around 11 BC. So is it possible that this was Halley's Comet that they saw? Um, around 7 BC, there was a, uh, a brilliant conjunction of Saturn and Jupiter. That's actually something that's happening right now this year as well. Um, and you've seen, I'm, I'm sure you've seen on the internet articles and posts about people saying the Christmas star, this is it. This is the Christmas star. And it's possible that that may be the case. Uh, that that's what they were seeing. Uh, another possibility is that it was, um, something called, uh, Sirius and actually just have to read this uh, section of a uh, commentary where I was reading about this because I don't really understand it. <laughs> so uh, in the years 5 to 2 BC, there was an unusual astronomical phenomenon. In those years, on the first day of the Egyptian month of Missouri, 
Sirius, the dog star, rose heliacally. I have no idea what that means, but it rose heliacally. I don't know. You can look it up. Uh, that is at sunrise. And shone with extraordinary brilliance. Now the name of Missouri means the birth of a prince. And to those ancient astrologers, such a star would undoubtedly, undoubtedly mean the birth of some great king. We cannot tell what star the Magi saw, but it was their profession to watch the heavens, and some heavenly brilliance spoke to them of the entry of a king into the world. So that's the interesting thing, is that we don't know what star they saw. We don't know what this was exactly that they saw. But the important thing is that they saw something new in the never-changing night sky. Right? They, they looked at the sky nightly. They studied the stars and the movement of the stars so they could see a pattern. They could see a constance uh, in the stars. And yet now they see something new. They see something remarkable. And they link it up with the Hebrew scriptures to determine that this means that a newborn king of the Jews has been born. They link it up and they determine that this is the case. Um, and it leads them to Bethlehem. It leads them uh, to Herod's throne. So if we think about Herod, again, there's another guy that we need to, to, to consider in this passage. Um, he was half Jew, half Edomian. He had Edomite blood in him. Um, and so he was not uh, purely Jewish, but he had been useful to the Roman Empire in controlling the region. So he also wasn't Roman, but he was very useful to the Roman Empire in controlling uh, the region. And he was appointed governor in 47 BC. Uh, in 40 BC, he was given the title of king. So he's actually given the title of king, even though he's serving the Roman Empire, he's still considered the king of this region. Um, and he kept the, the, he kept the peace in this relatively volatile region. Um, and so they were, they, they liked him. The Roman Empire really favored Herod. They let him do a lot of what he wanted to do. Um, and he had, he had rebuilt the temple in Jerusalem, in Jerusalem. So he's this complicated guy where he was very useful. He'd been in power for a long time. By the time Jesus comes along over 40 years, he's later in his life. Um, and he was one of the ways that he kept power, uh, so strongly is that he was very suspicious. He was a suspicious guy. If he suspected that anyone was a rival to his power, he would have them executed. Uh, he had even killed his own wife and three of his sons, including his eldest son. There's a, a story that uh, is extra biblical account. This is all extra biblical information about who Herod was. Um, but when Herod was nearing his death, he uh, imprisoned the most distinguished citizens of Jerusalem um, to uh, on trumped up charges. So he made up charges. Uh, imprisoned the, the, the most prominent uh, residents of Jerusalem and ordered that they be executed the moment that he died. So that when, when Herod died, all these people, the most distinguished, remarkable citizens of Jerusalem, would be executed. Um, and the reason for that is pretty dark. It's a dark thing anyway, but the reason makes it even darker. Uh, he knew that no one would mourn his death. And he wanted to ensure that some tears would be shed when he died. Um, so he was a pretty evil dude. And really, this really gives us some context 
uh, for how frightening the message of the Magi was for Herod and for everyone around him. This would certainly, a guy who was this suspicious, this calculating, uh, the fact that these Magi come and say, hey, we heard that there's a newborn king of the Jews, that's certainly going to get him on high alert. He's so suspicious. Um, and then consider how everyone else in the room, right? When the Magi come to him, it's certainly probably uh, in his throne room. He's got his attendants and everybody with him. They say this message. You got to just imagine everybody gets so tense right away, so nervous of what is he going to do? This, these guys don't even understand what they've said or who they've said it to. This is bad news. Everyone knew what was going on. And it helps us to also consider the chief priests and the scribes because he, he calls the chief priests and the scribes uh, to himself and they, they inquire of him, why did they help him? Why would these guys help Herod? Well, they were justifiably afraid of him. They're justifiably afraid of not cooperating with whatever he wanted to do. And then secondly, he had been generous with them. He had rebuilt the temple uh, he had given them food, given them tax breaks when there was a, a famine on. Um, he had tried to be good to them at times. Um, and, and so we see that Herod was kind of a, a prototypical corrupt politician, right? He had, he had handed out favors, he had glad-handed the people, and then he had also uh, been very evil and, and taking out rivals uh, and creating fear. So he both he both got people to be on his side by giving out favors, but also uh, making them very afraid of him. And so Herod is disturbed because his throne has been threatened by this news of a newborn king. Uh, even if it's not real, uh, he's still going to check it out. He's still going to investigate it. Um, and and we want to. I want you to, us to consider that idea of of the threat to Herod's throne that Jesus poses because. This is a common reaction to, to Jesus' intrusion into someone's life. Jesus, Jesus does not fit neatly into the life you've already be, been living. He upends it. He intends to be and has the right to be king everywhere. And that includes in your own life. He, he intends to be and has the right to be king over your life. He has that authority. So the question then is what does Jesus threaten in your life? What is on the throne of your life that Jesus threatens? It might be yourself. It might be other people. It might be fear. It might be anxiety. What, what is it that rules your life that Jesus's kingship is a threat to? Because you might have the same reaction as Herod when we talk about Jesus being king. You might go, wait, no, but I, I'm in control of my life. I need to be on the throne of my life. Or I have these priorities that those things are on the throne of my life. Or, or my desires are on the throne of my life. Or my family is on the throne of my life. What is it that's on the throne of your life that Jesus' presence threatens just the way that it threatened Herod? All right, move on to our next section here. Verses 7 through 12, gifts. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem saying, go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose 
went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. All right, so one thing I want you to notice right off the bat that's easy to skip over is that the timeline has progressed. Uh, this is not immediately after Jesus is born. Um, the Magi enter a house, not a stable. Uh, it seems that Mary and Joseph have settled down in Bethlehem. They've, they've moved out of the cave uh, and they've got in, into a house. Maybe they, they built one even. Joseph was a carpenter. Um, it's very possible that they even left and, 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 and decided to stay in Bethlehem after leaving Nazareth to avoid the scandal that their odd circumstances would have caused. Right? That they, they, they left at, with this situation where they, everyone knew Mary was pregnant before the marriage had taken place. Um, so they might have decided when they went to Bethlehem, hey, maybe we'll settle down here. We won't have to have the odd looks from the neighbors. We won't have to have people making comments about us. Um, all over the place, we can kind of just settle in as, as husband and wife with our child um, and avoid some of the, that scandal that we might have faced. The other thing we see here is that they, the, the Magi see a child, not an infant. Uh, they see a child there. Uh, and, and notice also that Herod had inquired as to when the star first appeared. Um, and, and we'll see next week that they told him that the star had appeared two years before. So it's likely that Jesus was around two years old uh, when the Magi visited him, give or take about two years. <coughs> so uh, we already addressed this a little bit, but this idea of kings, um, not, not kings and not necessarily three, just at least more than one, right? Because it is plural, uh, Magi. So they bring these gifts uh, and the, the, the reason, again, that we have this idea of three is because there are three gifts, uh, but not necessarily gifts that, like, each one had their own gift that they were giving. Uh, the first gift is gold, and this is a gift uh, that one would present to royalty. Uh, it's a gift that symbolizes Jesus' role as king of kings. Uh, but almost more importantly, um, it's also symbolic of God's presence. Uh, if you remember... If you go back and, and think about when we were studying the tabernacle in the book of Exodus, uh, as one entered the tabernacle, uh, the closer one got to the most holy place, the more gold there was. And almost everything in the tabernacle is covered with gold, is plated with gold. Um, and so we see that symbolically giving him gold is pointing to the tabernacle as well and pointing to the fact that Jesus was born to be king. Frankincense is the second um, gift, and frankincense was also used in temple worship. It was a key element in God's signature fragrance. If you remember in Exodus 30, when God's giving instructions on the tabernacle, he actually talks about uh, this fragrance that, he's, that they're meant to make. Um, Yahweh said to Moses, take sweet spices, sacte, and ancha, and galbanum, sweet spices with pure frankincense. Of each there shall be an equal part. 
and make an incense blended as by the perfumer, seasoned with salt, pure and holy. You shall beat some of it very small and put part of it before the testimony in the tent of meeting, where I shall meet with you. It shall be most holy for you. And the incense that you shall make according to its composition, you shall not make for yourselves. It shall be to you holy to the Lord. Whoever makes any like it to use his perfume shall be cut off from his people. So this frankincense, uh, this frankincense scent uh, was part of God's f- signature fragrance. It would have been one of the, the primary ingredients. So when people smelled it, they would have thought of the temple. They would have thought of the tabernacle. They would have thought of the priestly service that is going on. Because the priests themselves, because they spent so much time in the temple, they would probably have smelled like frankincense as well. And, and Jesus was, of course, born to be our high priest. So the gold kind of points to this idea of Jesus is born to be king. The frankincense points to the fact that Jesus was born to be our great high priest. And then we have the myrrh. Now, myrrh is an odd gift for a child because one of its primary uses was to embalm dead bodies. People would have certainly thought of death when they smelled myrrh. Uh, but it was also a, a key ingredient in the anointing oil used for the tabernacle and the priests. In Exodus 30, later on, or before the section we looked at just now, the Lord said to Moses, Take the finest spices of liquid myrrh, 500 shekels, and of sweet-smelling cinnamon, half as much, that is 250 and 250 of aromatic cane, and 500 of cassia, according to the shekel of the sanctuary, and a hin of olive oil, and you shall make of these a sacred anointing oil, blended as by the perfumer, it shall be a holy anointing oil. With it you shall anoint the tent of meeting and the ark of the testimony. So we see that this myrrh points to a couple things. One, it points to the fact that Jesus is born to die uh, for the sins of the world. It points to, to his death. Um, which, which So then we take the, these three gifts combined, we can see one thing there, that the gold points to his future as that he is born to be king. The frankincense points to the fact that he is born to be our great high priest. And then the myrrh points to the fact that he is born to die. Those things are all certainly true. But the other thing that I think it's crucial that we see is that it points to the fact that Jesus is the true tabernacle. The tabernacle was the forerunner of Jesus. It was where the presence of God dwelt among his people. Now Jesus was God incarnate. Instead of dwelling in a tent, he dwelt in human flesh. And Jesus was gifted, is gifted here by the priests, uh, by, the, by the, the magi, the primary elements that covered the tabernacle, the things that filled the tabernacle. Nearly Again, nearly all the wood was covered with gold. Uh, nearly everything was anointed with this anointing oil, of which a primary ingredient was myrrh. Uh, and the scent of, fra- of, of, uh, of frankincense would have filled the tabernacle and accompanied the sacrifices. These three things point to the fact that Jesus is the true tabernacle, the presence of God living among men. So then the Magi leave. Uh, they don't return to Herod because they were warned in a dream not to do so. Um, instead, they go back to their country. But I want us to think about what happens after this. And this is one of the things that, I mean, I think this all the time when, when I'm reading scripture is often we see these people having an, an encounter with Jesus, whether it's somebody that is healed by him or here, the Magi who come and worship him. 
what happens after they leave? We see them leave, but then we don't hear anything about them afterwards. What, what was the rest of their life, life like? How did this event impact them? Right? Did they believe that Jesus was the Messiah and worship him for the rest of their days? Did they repent and turn and trust in Yahweh and, and no longer practice all of their magic arts, but devote themselves to Yahweh? Or did they go back to worshiping a, a myriad of gods and, and practicing their magical arts and soothsaying and all of these things? Did they, did they go back to their old life? Was this just a blip where they go, oh, remember, remember that time we followed that star and, and went and worshiped this king? Well, that was interesting. Now we're on to something else. What was it like afterward? We don't know. Unfortunately, we don't know what happened to them after this. But they had worshipped and glorified Jesus in this moment. They had pointed to who he was, why he was born, the fact that his birth was significant. They provided this, this confirmation of, a, of a, a high order and, and an external foreign confirmation of even those outside of the Jewish faith could recognize that this was significant, recognize that Jesus was special, that he was doing something unique. But we don't know if that's how they continued the rest of their lives. This may have been a blip in which they glorified, they served a role, they played a part in God's plan, and then never continued to worship. But we know that in the end, every knee will bow. That in the end, all will glorify the King of Kings. But not all will be saved. Only those who fully recognize who he is and what he came to do. So I encourage you, if you're someone who has, has spent some time with Jesus, has had an encounter with Jesus, maybe had, had been committed and followed him for a time, worshipped, was a part of it, was following him closely for a time, and then fell away, to come back, to be committed to following him, to recognize the beauty of the gospel, that Jesus came and died. He, he came and he lived. He lived the perfect life. He entered into the mess with us was born in human flesh, was born even into a poor family, lived a perfect life, and then died the death that, that he did not deserve, but that we deserve, because we have sinned, we have fallen away, we have hurt people, we have rebelled against our Creator. And we can find forgiveness in accepting his death as payment for our sins. And then we can also accept his resurrection for ourselves that gives us the ability to live that abundant life filled with the Holy Spirit. And then one day to enter eternity with him in the new heavens and the new earth. And we can be with him forever in a perfect place. If you've not done that, I encourage you to do so. We'll wrap it up with this. How should we then live? Three takeaways from today. Number one, enjoy the mystery of the gospel. I think one of the cool things about this passage is, frankly, how much we don't know and how much we don't, just don't know about it. Uh, we don't know what the star was. We don't really know who these men were. We don't really know fully where they're from. We know what direction they came from. But we don't know fully who they're, where they're from. We don't know so many things in this passage. I think that's so cool, frankly. I, I think that Mary and Joseph were probably pretty perplexed by it themselves. These men come, they're foreigners, they're giving us really expensive gifts. They're saying that they, they also know that our son is, has been born to be king. 
how did this happen? Who are these guys? It's a beautiful thing that we don't have all the answers, frankly. Our God has to be bigger than us. He's got to be a little mysterious in order for him to be who he is. If it was a God we could fully understand, what good would he be? Frankly. All right, number two. Consider what in your life competes for Jesus' spot on the throne of your heart. Consider what, what is it that, that wants that spot, wants to have that control, wants to have that power in your life, wants to be king in your life um, instead of Jesus. And dethrone it and allow Jesus to be on the throne of your heart. And then third, never stop worshiping Jesus. Again, we don't know what the Magi's life was afterwards, but, but it, it seems very possible that they left and then, and then did not continue to solely worship Jesus, to, to follow him, to, to look after what, what is he going to do next. Don't be like that. We want to continue to worship him. We want to be committed to him. We want to follow him forever. Not just let him be a blip in our life, but be who we commit our lives to, to follow him forever. I'm going to pray in just a minute and then we'll share in communion together. We'll have some music where you can prepare your elements, uh, prepare your hearts, and then we'll come back and take communion together. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for um, this story of the, the Magi who came to see Jesus, to bring him gifts, to proclaim him as king. God, we pray that that we would also worship Jesus, that we would lay our own gifts at his feet um, in worship, but that we would not stop worshiping him, but we would follow him forever. God, work in our hearts. Show us how we can be more like Jesus, that we can grow in our faith, grow in our love. God, that you would be fully on the throne, that we would remove all, comp all competitors God, we want to follow you. We want to trust in you because you love us so much that you sent Jesus for us. And in his name we pray, amen.